Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this Wednesday evening? David, I'm well, thank you. Uh, it's been a busy, creative time. Uh, lots of uh, lots of things swirling around. I'm trying to keep the mood really positive, and I'm making progress on my big uh, memory book. I'm going to have to not call it that because it's sort of blowing well away from that word. And I'm really, the whole purpose of it is really trying to uh, uh, reinvent that that very notion uh, from any kind of definition you can apply to the, the notion of memory. I'm trying to uh, damage it and uh, grow a, a new form of it. And I made some progress on uh, my big art exhibition coming up in seattle the install date is the 26th so i'm i'm really uh it's called ghostscapes and looks at a very lost explorers theme of of psychogeography and location and embodiment uh and all of those predicaments and i think it's very uh well it's a lot of fun uh it's a lot of work but it's a lot of fun to engage with that in very physical terms you know and it was sunny today so i was actually outside uh so it's good to get some smell and some metal and some you know shards of weird stuff and uh i i like it i i feel good and i feel good when i'm doing that so that's kind of the report here how are how are you i'm good i'm good just very busy excuse me, very busy schedule. I've been working on some pretty cool projects. I've been serializing a novel uh, called Ronin Trash, which takes elements of hillbilly redneck culture and mashes them up with Japanese movies and all kinds oh, of I weird... like that idea. I think that <laughs> yeah. Sense. Yeah. Meth heads who commit seppuku and, and things like that. Um, and I, this weekend... I'm going to do one of those three-day novel writing challenges. Novella, 15, 20,000 words. Uh, I have a concept in mind that I won't state here because, you know, you know how the muse is. She can be a bit tricky. But on the practical front, it's just been taking care of the boy. He's getting, you know, this morning he counted to four and said ABC and He's saying ball and he's saying a lot of no. Uh, no, 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 no. I tried to feed him some white rice today. He said, no, 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 because he wanted spaghetti. So th there's that. And I've uh, been studying, kind of going to night school to get some uh, IT security certifications to slap on a resume to hopefully get a, a very good paying job, which is not completely off track from my artistic ambitions because of my epiphany recently that what's been holding back my full-on dissemination of my work into the world is a lack of a budget. So in lieu, in lieu of trying to get somebody else to pay for my stuff, I've decided I'm going to pursue the highest paying jobs I possibly can in an effort to create my own budget because man, if I can just get five to 10 grand a year and use that money wisely in terms of 
advertising, whether that's on Amazon or social media or what have you. I'd have to look into that. And I have friends who do this kind of thing for a living. Uh, I think that the quality of shows like this one, Agitator, the quality of my writing, the quality of your writing and Kelby's writing and all these guys writing, uh, it's really only being, it's the only thing keeping, you know, a, a mind like yours from sharing a stage with a Jordan Peterson or something like that is lack of exposure. Right. Yes, like, that's true. I think you're right. So, I understand exactly what you're saying. And it that does ultimately come down to a budget, a well, uh, a, a well deployed budget. Uh, but you'd agree with that. And uh, if you have some yeah. expertise that you can call upon and friends, I mean, I think that is that is what's needed. And uh, take heart in that because you can't fake content. You know, if you didn't if you didn't have content, if you didn't feel good in what you're creating, well, then it would be kind of meaningless. And I have known someone who was in the absolute opposite camp. And Mm. uh, every once in a while he comes back to me. He was uh, I met him a long time ago and he was uh, he's a Hollywood child, an Encino Mm. boy Mm -hmm. and not a really nice dude, but not anything between his ears. I mean, Mm -hmm. nothing. But money. That is his saving grace. Mm -hmm. And he has been assigned by the family business unit. I won't mention any names to direct Mm -hmm. several absolutely hysterically bad movies that are the fodder for Amazon Prime. And just you you wonder who who green lights these things. Why are they there? Well, I think they're there to deal with these relatives and offspring yeah. that have nothing going for them except budget. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, I have maintained that if somebody were to listen to this show, if they were to pick a five-episode chunk, and I maintain this for Agitator. I maintain this for my books. For, for example, if somebody were to sit down and read Dying World or Private Midnight, they would become a, most of them would become fans if it's targeted correctly. If we're finding that sweet spot, that, that place that's underserved right now by big publishing, I think they'd be hooked. And I think they would subscribe to this show. I think they would subscribe to my other show. And I think in fewer numbers, but uh, significantly more monetarily important numbers, they would buy our books. I'm, I'm, I know this is true because if you put our shows up against other shows, there are shows I think that are of equal quality. And some of them are even, you know, there are a few shows out there like weird studies and stuff that are really, really good, but we're just as good. We just don't have the marketing yet. So that's my goal. That's my goal for 2023 is to get into a position. That's a good, that's a uh, a very good goal. And I support that. And I'm looking at those options too. Mm -hmm. I absolutely am. Uh, Well, let's deliver on our promise and uh, offer some value of the kind that we do. Um, Let's do it. Yeah. Do you have a band and an aphorism for us? I do. And uh, 
actually, I, I started off with a different name, but I went back to a name that I actually su- I've suggested to uh, a couple of my students, and they're actually thinking of using it because they thought it was really, they liked the tone, and uh, it's the last responders. Mm. We've had enough about first responders and thank <laughs> you for your service and all this kind of stuff. Well, who are the last responders? And my, uh, I, I just thought that up as kind of, um, well, kind of snarky humor. But my students who, who I mentioned it to, they interpret it more as the last line of defense. You know, they they had a much more positive spin on it. They're, uh, they're. Uh, well, they're kind of innocent people. Uh, I really, one's a black dude who's, he lost 110 pounds and is now a powerlifting uh, just champion. And Good for him. Uh, yeah, um, but they are a little bit innocent, but I, but the last responders, but their concept album, which is a multimedia uh opera grotesque mm-hmm. is based on the tantalus legend of greek mythology and is subtitled leonardo dicaprio in hell <laughs> and he's even more bloated than he is mm-hmm. in real life now he has to wear a leo suit which is slightly a little bit more bloated, not really a fat suit exactly. It's a Leo suit and it's uncomfortable for him to wear in eternity, the limbo of eternity where he is. But it's good protection because uh, regularly, as in constantly, he is chased by ravenous bears and then devoured by paparazzi. But his real torment is surrounded by absolutely beautiful naked young models who turn into statues and mannequins the moment he tries to get nasty and personal. (laughs) So Leonardo DiCaprio in hell by the last responders. I love it. That's great. That's hilarious. Uh, as for our aphorism. Okay, I've got three because I wasn't sure if I'd run the first one out. Uh, I, I know my, my sense of sentence rhythm is, is keen. And I know I've introduced one with the same sort of syntactic structure. But Aphorism number one is, what if loneliness and alienation were fundamental expressions of sanity today? Mm -hmm. Thinking I might, that's come up before. So I hit up two others in a very different zone. I'd like to believe that I embody the radical mischief of river otters but I am certain of the inherent sorrow of baboons. Hmm. And finally, the universe is not an ungodded space station of mirrors. I thought, well, you know, I like poetry. I'm going to, I'm going to be poetic. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
the unguided space station of mirrors. That's fantastic. Some people would have us believe, right? I believe so. I just don't think that's where I'm at. I don't think that's where you're at. I don't see that. I think that this is a heavily guided uh, space station that is a great place to be. Yeah, I uh, I think that ungodded is a really interesting term because it's different than godless. Ungodded feels intentional, such as being unpersoned, yes. having something stripped of it. Yep. Uh, and I think that the the idea of the of the mirror it's used in some interesting ways when you're talking about God, him or herself where you know i'm sure you've heard it say that you know human life is just god looking at himself through our eyes so it's looking through these different mirrors but the the space station with mirrors feels like isolated and desolate and the only thing you can see is yourself reflected back to you over and over and over again and the place isn't lacking god or you know somehow de- devoid of it it's it's actively being ungodded it's in a process of ungodding and uh i feel that i feel that where we're at now yeah i think there is a there there is a spiritual uh crisis there where some people some forces some vectors of influence are are wanting to ungod uh it's not a new i it started really in in serious earnest in the 19th century and we've spoken about some of the major players in that frame but i think it's become something that is is down to the the real street corner level today that and social media has has really pushed it forward i was talking to lisa uh, I just I love hearing her voice. She's got the sexiest voice, but she's also very funny. And she was talking about how Valentine's Day in elementary school is now off the books. <laughs> do it because of some re- possible connection to Saint Valentine's. And you know, mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be something about the Valentine's Day massacre. You know, Chicago gangsters getting shot. No, no, no. Just mm-hmm. a very general catholic church reference you know as if anyone thinks like that and that comes of course you know we've we lost halloween to the harvest festival you know as -hmm. if anyone knows anything about harvesting anything you know i mean jesus get some of these uh people out working in a field of any kind and it wouldn't be good So it's like the it's like the homesteaders, the people who who purport to want to return back to nature. The idea behind that being, you more than welcome to try. You're yeah. more than welcome to try. Please, please do, and bring a camera. Bring a camera while you're at it, because I I want to I want to see that happen. I mean, it's just it, it's absolute nonsense, and so there is a constant ungodding, and I I. I'm glad you like that one because I think it does. It, it's something that has been an underlying theme of Lost Explorers right from the start. And I think it is a real, uh, it's anti-magic, it's anti-engagement with the world. It's It puts up some fundamental barriers of integrating soul, mind, 
spirit, ethics, with day-to-day living and community. And mm-hmm. it's just, that's the nightmare, you know, we're trying mm-hmm. to uh, to get away from. It's the nightmare of the termite chambers. That's, we mm-hmm. might as well be there, you know? The nightmare of the termite chambers. So many great uh, late 60s, early 70s sci-fi novel terms here. The ungodded spaceship hall of mirrors and <laughs> night of the termite chamber <laughs> well see i'm that's where i'm that's where i'm at and i i think there's a lot of of substance in that that worldview that is uh unfortunately just so damn appropriate you know it really is it really is and that ties into your imaginative challenge all right hit me with it uh, so I, I know that you've been in a big writing groove, and I really celebrate mm-hmm. that. So I thought we would dig into uh, some real tactical storytelling. So the, the working title of this is The Inducers. The Inducers. Okay. You've discovered evidence of not just top secret, but forbidden level secret dealings of an MK Ultra style psyops project downstream from the 60s a deep tissue program of experimental breeding that began in the 1980s subjects were exposed to both radiation and radical amounts of psychedelics and then interbred to create individuals supposedly with the capability of projecting thoughts and images and the capability amplifies over generations. Most of these offsprings grew to demonstrate insanity, severe autism, or some psychopathology, but not necessarily all of them. However, Some form of espionage or perhaps humanistic activism led to many of these highly dangerous and unstable individuals getting out into the world and possibly procreating (laughs) in the intervening years. Your job is as fixer, we don't like to use the word assassin, Mm. but we certainly don't i would never i would never write the word assassin down no 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 your job is is you're you're the cleanup man there we go your job is to track them down and all of their offspring if you can and to systematically eliminate the threat they pose now some of the people you will be searching for may be very capable of defending themselves. There's also potentially the matter of who let the originals out? Are they still active in the world and perhaps opponents of yours? You need a strategy and proof of first level success for this exercise or do you want to join them? Mm. And right. yeah. And I was thinking of that as a kind of 
way of, you know, playing into some of these creative energies you've got firing around. And I was mm -hmm. also thinking that, God, I wish I had the money. I do. What you need is a motorcycle and a really cool new pair of sunglasses. <laughs> and I think that's the kind of spirit to, um, to bring to this of, of, yeah. One of those cool double-breasted leather jackets, right? Yeah. 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 Hey, you know what? Screw it. Leather pants too. A big freaking dragon on the back of the vest, you know? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> See, anything worth doing is is implicitly worth overdoing. Absolutely. I've got the hair. I've got the hair for it. I got the, yeah. the biker, the biker hair. I'm halfway there. I need to grow out my beard a little bit, but you know, yeah. with a with a beard and some shades and maybe a neck tattoo. I'm sure Rios would love that. <laughs> well, okay. You're ready to rock and roll. That's I'm ready to good. rock and roll. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. I uh, was talking to you a bit off mic about the deleterious effects of social media and how I'm I'm reaching a kind of end. So these two goals of mine dovetail, making money in the private, we'll call it the civilian sector. There you have artists, you have civilians. Yeah, I like uh, that. My infiltration of the civilian world uh, and making my own fortune uh, coincides directly with just wanting to be completely away from this other world because of its sort of unsustainable, uh, untenable tendency to just constantly eat itself and you know push people into the mud and i don't even really now i don't see writers uh talking about writing anymore i haven't seen a post in weeks from a writer that talks about how much they enjoy a certain book or or you know well i take that back a few people close friends of mine have posted things like that normal people but most of the writing world seems completely uninterested in that. So as we're talking about our new paradigms, I didn't know if you wanted to go down that road. There's a lot that's fresh on my mind with that. I know you probably have a particular angle that you want to come at this at, but I wanted to throw that out to to kind of start with uh, in terms you of- You should keep throwing. I, I definitely have yeah. something to get back to uh, you with because uh, I think it will open up some interesting doors. But carry on with that thought because I, I, I I'm interested to see how uh, smoothly and organically what you started off with segues into sure. what I was going to bring up. Cause I think it will. Well, when you are currently observing uh, trends on, on let's say Twitter, I brought up before, but Twitter is my big uh, social media that I go back to. It used to be Facebook. And before that it was MySpace. until I ultimately decided to leave those and go to Twitter. Uh, I'm not sure which one is worse. I feel like they're all equally bad in their own special way, namely because you have a contingency of blowhards who are interested more in policing uh, morality and who's who's a good or a bad person, which is a on its surface is a hilarious thing to do over the internet, right? Uh, and it's especially hilarious in. 280 characters or less attempting to to pull this off. There's a lot of sort of insinuation that has to happen. A lot of buzzwords have to be used. But I think that, you know, if we take it all the way back to the beginning of social media, 
it was initially created, Facebook at least was created as a tool for Mark Zuckerberg and his college buddies to rank the hotness of the girls that they went to school with. And over time, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And over time it developed into the social media that it is today, but it never really lost that spirit. MySpace had a top eight. I'm not sure if you were ever on MySpace. It was Oh yeah. I made a huge yeah. commitment to it. Uh yeah. for the music front. Yeah. 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 Cause it was it was genuinely good for music. I found a lot of music through MySpace because users were able to pin songs to their profile. So when you went to their profile, you'd hear something and think, oh my God, what is that? So MySpace, I think, initially had a lot of promise. What happened was it was just completely steamrolled by Facebook. And Facebook was fine for a time when you, the novelty of being able to be around your friends, uh, but it's kind of a scenario of two men on a deserted island. Let's say that they're best friends. And so they start off and they say, hey, let's band together. We'll build some shelter. I know how to fish. You know how to cook. We can work together. And then by you know, year seven or eight, one of them's dead and has been eaten by the other one because they've just gotten at each other's throats so much. So there was a kind of feeling on Facebook of a perpetual daily from the minute you wake up to the minute you fall asleep, a perpetual Thanksgiving dinner that never ends. And everybody's uncle was there and he was often drunk and he would say something and they put up with it, put up with it. And finally they couldn't take it anymore. And then that disseminated out into actual Thanksgivings and people who were too loaded up with social media to deal with it anymore. uh, That was the straw that finally broke their back. So around the time of 2011, the Arab spring happened and Twitter, that's when Twitter really started taking off because it was this vehicle through which you could see live on the ground reporting of this revolution that was happening. And I think that that instance and uh, Black Lives Matter, the Trump presidency, and just good old fashioned muckraking, ambulance chasing, People Magazine, USA Today, gossip rag, um, good old fashioned American filth, all mixed into a blender to create a kind of society of people who are dead set on doing continuing to do this action where they where they purge people based on uh mistakes that they've made things that they've said that have been off uh i've seen a lot of uh claims about people that are completely unsubstantiated that we're all supposed to take at face value and then i guess drive these people off from from writing but you said something really interesting about uh the irony the hilarity of the term writing community and how those two things don't really go together because you you necessarily, if you get three writers in a room together, we can all be friends, right? But, you know, in, in this public space, we're all competing for a limited amount of seats in this messed up system that I don't think should exist anymore. So they're naturally going to go after each other. They're going to form clicks and they're going to try to take each other down. And it's all just where I'm at. And I think that I'm not on the cutting edge of this but I'm, I'm a little, I'm a few steps behind, but I've seen this happening with people and it's beginning to happen with me where every time I open up a social media platform, I feel sick. I feel physically ill, like sick to my stomach because I know that I'm about to see the same uh, sort of 
ritual sacrifice occur again and again and again. And the question of whether people deserve it or not is completely inconsequential. Like it doesn't matter like who deserves it at this point or not. It just keeps happening. Uh, it's not happening to me. Uh, it has happened to me in the past. I took my turn on the wheel. Uh, it's not fun. It's it's not a good feeling to have people who you think incorrectly are your friends to turn on you like this. So that has definitely colored my my perception of it. But that was a year ago. I mean, that didn't drive me off of social media. What's finally doing it is it's relentless repetition of this same thing over and over and over again, where that now seems to be the purpose of it. Twitter now seems to be a place that you go to to kill or be killed in this in this particular arena. And my contention is that if you just maybe just step away from it and don't go onto it, maybe you'll start to find I've I have found when I've taken Twitter breaks that I start to read more and enjoy films more. The podcasts get a little bit better. Um, and then when I'm on it, I find myself referencing Twitter. I go, did you see the thing on Twitter? Well, that's what the media has done. Uh, okay, look, I've, I've, I want to respond to this uh, on three different levels. And I, I just sort of uh, hinted at one, the larger media. But I mean, legacy media, I mean, professional yeah. media, what we, you know, the major TV networks, the newspapers, magazines, you know, that world. But I want to start with, with looking at, um, because... I'm of the view, and I think you are too, that this uh, mood, this uh, sort of social vibe is 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 far from peculiar uh, to arts communities of any kind, whether it be writers mm -hmm. or painters or filmmakers, uh, that it's a, a it's a national and international thing. we We see this sort of constantly. And I think there are ways to talk about that because it is so much the subject of mainstream media. But insofar as we do talk about and think about um, arts communities, uh, I wonder if it's easy to forget about the snarkiness and backstabbing and difficulties that past arts communities have faced whether it was the Dadaists or the Surrealists or going all the way back to the coffeehouse culture, the essay and pamphlet culture of mm -hmm. 18th century London or, or Paris, you know, or, I mean, at any given time, uh, there was a lot of, of scrambling for position. There were a lot of impassioned views. There were, you know, people getting excited. There are, uh, smart people on, you know, a fair bit of alcohol and drugs that they've all, but that's always been the case, you know. Uh, so all of those factors have been involved. I wonder sometimes myself if I haven't uh, romanticized the tribal uh, buzz and support and solidarity of arts communities throughout the centuries, but certainly in, in the modern age, and overlooked some of the constant infighting and social tensions, people sleeping with each other, breaking up because of that, 
uh, actual violence breaking out. Um, I mean, think of the Beats or Andy Warhol's Factory Group or, I mean, a pretty weird dynamic uh, going on across this. So that's my first question is whether mm-hmm. or not social media gives us a look into something that has really always been there. It's just that we're getting more of that, perhaps maybe that is more Mm -hmm. common or we're getting that out of context and not able to sort of swim that into a bigger aquarium of monsters, magic and mayhem. We're getting more mayhem. What do you think about that first point? I think that's a good first point. I think the chicken or the egg question is is very important. What I would say is that anytime there is a system in place that is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and whose business model depends on the addiction of its user base, I think you're going to see a natural devolution in how the people act. All the things that you mentioned 100% existed and you can see bits of this throughout time. You know, there you know, we have Lord of the Flies is a great example of this kind of thing happening. What's unique about this is inherent in the medium in the technology itself, which is that it it perpetuates these things at such a rapid clip that it becomes a matter of accelerationism rather than repetition. What perhaps we could say started off as a kind of natural expose of how people have we'll say always acted uh but what people haven't done is they haven't had that feedback loop that just keeps giving it back to them day in and day out i would assume in the past uh especially before the invention of things like telephone uh certainly before tv you'd have a break between these things. And they might be back of mind. You might be thinking about, you know, who your enemies are in, in your particular social sphere. You might be gossiping about them behind their back, but you never have to, you didn't have to see it every day and you didn't have to see it limited to 280 characters. So it's those two things. It's the constant nature of it and the necessarily limited nature of the medium. It's like, Okay, you've got you've got 280 characters. Make a point about a writer that you don't care for in 280 characters or less. It's impossible. It's necessarily going to take more than that to do so. Does that track? It does track. I I think there are some other. Uh, I'll I'll get to my other points. We've made. You've also jogged my thinking about uh, a couple of more. Um, First of all, I I think a crucial factor is that, and this is absolutely statistically true, and it's quite bizarre, and it's against all journalism standards. No one predicted this at the highest levels of the profession of journalism, which is pretty much doomed now, as we've been saying for some time. I think Mm -hmm. the new AI writing systems are probably the last uh, nail in the coffin. But the, the number of times and the degree to which mainstream media, official media, 
uh, you know, the newspaper of record, the New York Times, the London Times, on and on and on. The best that we have to offer, the number of times that that tweets and mm-hmm. social media posts are referenced, oftentimes not from famous people who you could understand. I mean, I, I think we'd all get with that. Um, but I'm I'm talking about just they they can use their own algorithms to find tweets from whoever to support a, a particular mm-hmm. point of view. And you go, look, I don't care who that avatar from Cincinnati, I mean, who are they? Like, why, mm-hmm. why did that become important? You know, if it's the secretary of defense, yeah, okay, that may be, that, that could be important, but on yeah. and on and on. So the media has created its own source, endless source of news. And this was very intentional. It it needed to meet the 24-7 advertising cycle and punch up those clicks. So it can manufacture stories. It can rejig stories. All you have to do is you keep the main body copy. CNN does this beautifully or not. Not very, uh, it's pretty clunky. Just change the headline slightly. You just want to make sure people know the subject is still the same, but it looks like some new information. And you quote a a couple of new tweets, maybe, you know, just to keep uh, other algorithm searchers from seeing through your scam too quickly. That's all you're doing that for. Um, And that process has become so widespread that, there really isn't a valid distinction anymore, I don't think, between social media and legacy media. People who used to have credentials uh, within the professional media ranks have often kind of lost that because they're tweeting so much themselves. They're building their own brand. They're building their own brand. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, just a quick insert here because we need some energy. I had a student write a beautiful thing of, I was there, I was present at one of the most awkward and possibly gruesome moments when a friend committed to rebranding herself. Isn't that lovely? I think that's really fine writing from a a very, uh, you know, early young writing point of view mm-hmm. yeah the rebranding you know it used to be like reinventing you know like no 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 now it's rebranding and coming yeah. up also with a new identity and it's just so awful so i think that some of this problem does interrelate to mainstream media and i'm but i'd like the term uh accelerationism and I love I love the idea of accelerance in the sense of arson and pyrotechnics. Yeah, right, I'm really big on that, um, and I've studied them, and I the chemistry of that fascinates me. And I think when we move metaphorically to accelerance in a rhetorical sense and in a communicative uh, media sense, we can actually track how certain words and number one on the list would be hate hate Mm -hmm. speech if you look at a graph of the incidence of that in these outlets that i'm talking about the legacy media outlets but also now the algorithm 
spiders control through uh, Twitter, the main social media platforms you mentioned, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, hate has just shot through. And as I've said, you know, whenever a word starts to appear all the time, you can tell not <laughs> that it's being misused, that it's not just finding new diagnoses, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it really is just it's being piled on in outrageous situations. And I found four examples of that today. Uh, and the, the phrasing was hating on something, which is a I hate that. Uh, syntax don't hate hating on this or spewing hate mm-hmm. and i mean the example is just like so soft and milky and gentle and i thought you know if you found the person using that phrase spewing hate mm-hmm. either they are in such a bubble they can't function or i think more likely they intentionally know they're bullshitting you know, I think so too. Just, yeah. they don't know. They don't have enough vocabulary to get past that. It's always going to be spewing hate. It's never going to be hosing hate or firebombing hate or, you know, they're not adept enough at language to do anything different. They're using these packaged phrases and just throwing things like a, a, a kid having a tantrum, you know, uh, so that that gets in the culture and we start to to wear the living hell out of some very good, powerful vertebrate words. And now we have a bunch of jellyfish words because we've beaten the crap out of them. They just have no meaning and they're thrown around all the time. And we're in this frothing foam of overused language of deep emotional intent that is starting to get so stultifying and numbing well what do you do you throw in some more chili powder you throw in something get something on fire because god you know and and the soup gets weirder and weirder that is the one of the biggest points and i'm glad you brought that up because it tends to slip my mind when i'm going on about what annoys me about these platforms. But if I were to pinpoint one thing, it's the repetition of mannerisms and phrases that drives me crazy. I would like just once when people were going through this process of deciding to unperson a person, if they use their own words to do so, instead of saying something like, oh, they're a chud diaper baby uh, and using some phrase like you hate to see it, something that they've pulled from the Simpsons or the Sopranos or something that has seeped into the cultural lexicon. Like, can you explain, this is high school writing, explain in your own words why you think this is bad, why this person is bad or this concept is bad. Like, I don't want to hear a single jellyfish word come from you. Explain, explain why, the same way that I would explain to you. I would say, well, this is what happened. And this is my perception of it. And this is why I think it's good or bad. I wouldn't start, you know, my father does this because he's very ideologically captured more to the right. Well, I say more to the right, very to the right. He's a very right-wing guy. Hmm. And you'll hear him use the rights version 
of this. Do you want to know? I started seeing uh, right wing cancel culture three days ago. Right wing cancel culture because they were talking about the Chinese spy balloon, and a reporter, an independent reporter, uh, disagreed with this prominent right wing pundit about the Chinese spy balloon. I think he called him an idiot or something like that. And the right wing pundit went back through this man's tweets from 2012, which would have made him about 14 years old at the time, because that's the way time works. It's kind of crazy to think about, but there are some young journalists out there who were born in 1998 at this point. Uh, But he had written things like rape jokes and he wrote the N word in one post, you know, 14 years old. And the comments below it were using the same jellyfish language. They were saying things like, yikes, oh, not a good look. Does his employer know about this? These are conservative people to whom this has been done for four or five years now. And they're just doing it. And all of a sudden, I thought to myself, any distinction that I make between these people is completely irrelevant. They're all captured by the same system. And they will use the tools if the tools benefit them at the time to do the exact same thing, whether that's getting rid of this guy or getting rid of I don't know, an artist who talked to somebody who paid tribute to H.P. Uh, Lovecraft once, right? It's all, it's all the same soup that these people are in. But the jellyfish words, to circle back to that, that is what drives me nuts. We advocate on this podcast all the time to use the the English language is so rich. There's so much vocabulary. There's so many ways that you can put things. And by the way, we're supposed to be writers and our talent is supposed to be kind of incisively picking our words to make a point in a way that you've never seen it done before, right? A riff on a theme, if you will. And you just see these writers being like uh, problematic, abuser, um, all this kind of stuff those words don't mean anything anymore. Like it could mean anything from uh, the guy didn't tip to the guy beats up his girlfriend. You know, we, we don't know anymore. Two things, you know, I miss the old days of uh, innuendo and whisper gallery and damning by faint praise and all of that, what the Australians call white anting to get back to termites, you know, that sort of, really insidious sabotage of leaving it to you know people's imaginations of of how terrible what someone rather than just this kind of really uh juvenile name calling that just gets out so quickly you know and so and so's called someone out you know i that that ex- expression gets used as headlines every day mm-hmm. in media vehicles that should know much better But I think you mentioned a very, very odd concept. And I have a workshop thing, which I I develop. And I I pitch this actually as a kind of survivor type game show. You mentioned the idea of use your own words. Mm -hmm. I really wonder if that is even possible. I think that goes to some very deep questions about the nature of language. But if we look at that today, and if you're involved in uh, 
well, teaching at the level that I am, at the, the interface that I am, a basic, very basic state university, uh, with students who, you know, are, I've, I've really had to amend my, uh, my frame of reference. Uh, and I keep doing that because uh, standards keep falling and the public education system continues to contract and, and erode, and in some cases, just hemorrhage. Uh, but where we get our own words from, how that works, if you eliminate quality reading, if you're not actively engaged in conversation at the level that you and I are right now, where there's a sense of, of responsibility, and all, I mean, we're getting something out of this, but there's a there's a commitment to attention and to engagement and to a rhythm of exchange. And if you don't have any of that going on, if the media that you're taking in is complete crap, it's like food. It's like the the what they serve as eggs at McDonald's that are liquid, not eggs. And there's nothing to do with eggs in them. But you still order your egg McMuffin. Well, that's the the equivalent. the The analogy is is exactly where where people's own words they they don't have any. They have very few. And you'll like this idea. I don't think I've ever mentioned this to you. I actually pitched this to um, the guy who's the uh, the the senior producer and and the corporate force behind shows like The Bachelor. Uh, he's a, a friend of a friend and really really bright individual. Uh, and I think he's got a lot of dilemmas about where his uh, substantial uh, income has come from. But my idea was to take a group of couples. And I thought, let's just do couples because that adds another sort of level of flavor to it. But people are only given certain words to use. And they're given them physically so they can refer to them. They can look at, it's like shuffling cards. They can look at what their words are. So you can look at your words and, and I can look at mine. And in order for us to maybe actually say something, we might have to do some negotiating. We can use other words when we're negotiating privately, but in order to speak to the group and to advance a position in a group, and there, there are larger game objectives that we'd be working on. We might have to share words. We might have to bargain of how that works. I can't just use your one of your crucial key words without some sort of licensing agreement, if you like, or some sort of agreement. We barter. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an interesting way to think about words is, is getting a little bit more uh, I wish they'd fight back a little bit more and, and people would just, you know, get a buzzing in their pocket, like their phone's gone nuclear when they've overused a word or, you know, a little sort of pet collar discipline. So, oh, shit, I said that word again, you know, <laughs> uh, and I when with this uh, this group that I've got uh, this semester are very good and also they don't mess with me. Uh, but I had one group that every other word was like, like, yeah. like, 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 and I just said, look, I'm going to start with the Nerf cannon and I've got a high powered one and we'll, you know, and then I'm going to move up to wet rags. 
<laughs> and I can, I'm, I'm not the, the baseball pitcher I used to be. I got to work my shoulder out. But I said, if you want me to loosen up and stretch, I will. And I'll get up some speed. And I don't care if you go to the administrators, go, he hit me with a wet. If, if I hear more of this, I'm going to go ballistic. And, you know, if I, and if I, I, I always jump up on the, one of the desks when I do that. Mm-hmm. So, and this is early in the, you know, when I just start to get the feeling and they, they don't know how to handle that. They think, Oh, you know, and I, a couple of them just drop out. Then usually I, I haven't had to do that for a while, but mm-hmm. the others get scared and they start to think and they hear it. They hear how stupid they sound. And, you know, and I had one student who's always going, well, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? You know, and I had this, she was just fantastic. Full Muslim regalia. And she turned to him and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> else does either, including you. <laughs> and, you know, isn't it that was it though? So healthy. Isn't that it? Is didn't she nail it when she said that? It's if you don't really have anything to say. I love the connection you made here too. I'm going to use it in the future, which is if you are participating in capital D discourse and you are using jellyfish words, which I'm stealing, I'm taking jellyfish words. Yeah. If you're using jellyfish words, that is the equivalent to the kind of claptrap that comes out of somebody who's saying like all the time. You don't actually have a thought in your head. You have a direction. I read an article that I thought was fantastic. I I might have sent it to you. You might have sent it to me. Or neither of those things happened to cover all my bases. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I do know that a friend of mine sent this to me. And it was about progressivism and the goals of progressivism. And it stated that the issue with progressivism is that they don't have any goals. They have a direction and they know which direction they're moving in. But everything after that is vague. It's not, they can't articulate it to you. And so what you're seeing is people who are moving in a certain direction. If you ever debate something, that's a hot button issue with somebody who listens to a lot of infotainment and start to actually press them on their issues. I do this with my dad all the time. When he starts talking about the border wall, I'll say, well, how are we going to, how's that going to work? Like, aren't our ancestors immigrants? Well, they did it the right, you know, blah, 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 blah. I mess with him. It's a fun game for me. But when you talk to these people who have these diets of infotainment, they start to use like a lot. They start to fall back on whatever they heard Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow say. And you realize that, oh, you don't, in your mind, the way in my mind, and I'm sure your mind too, there's a fully formed thought. To me, it's almost like a, an amoeba organ, organism. It's a creature. It's a little floating thought beat bubble. You have an actual thought. And when you're talking, what you're doing is you are, you're an arrow that's aiming for that punchline. 
these people have minds that are punchline free. There is no punchline. There's a vague sense of right and wrong and a direction to head in that's more right than wrong. And that's where you get this dumb shit <laughs> that we have to listen to all the time. Well, you know, I think it ties into this whole epidemic of anxiety about identity. And I just did a piece of music with an undercurrent is a voice saying identity conformity, identity conformity. But it, it ties into the, the jellyfish idea. Uh, one of my favorite uh, in that whole uh, biological family is the Portuguese man of war. Have a Google on what those look. They're quite beautiful. They're a hydrozoan uh, and a, a siphon of four. Uh, and the interesting thing about them, and this is true of all the creatures that we call siphonophores, how they feed. They're colonial organisms. They're really, in pure terms, shouldn't be considered individual entities. They are communities in a way. They're ecosystems as much as they are creatures. And I wonder if one of the problems that people face in this identity anxious time is that they don't feel as if they really are individuals. They need group identity. And we've mm -hmm. seen this as a, I think perhaps maybe the number one uh, characteristic of social media is this peculiarly deformed tribal identity yeah. anxiety and it's because people really are these mutant ecosystems of ideology and pat phrases and processed language like processed cheese that just flops around and they don't have any way to even begin to contemplate precision or articulate response and certainly not original response, even just on that level of a, of a very personal and, you know, one's own words. They're just not on that level. So all they are is this sort of junk food language ecosystem of ideology. And that's a pretty tragic position to be in, particularly, and this is where it moves to a level of urgency, because that's just just pathetic, and and we could just leave that there if it was, and 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 you meet people who are kind of know that about themselves, and they seem kind of like, I don't know, kind of charming, you know, dunderheads, mm -hmm. but but charming, but certainly harmless. But the problem is when when a sense of of nagging need to justify your own personal boundaries and your name and your brand and your receipts, your presence as a commercial sort of being that forces you into thinking, oh, I've got to, I've got to have some integrity as an individual. Hmm. And if I'm really not that, then I've got paranoia, claustrophobia, agoraphobia. I'm in a world of hurt inside myself. 
And therefore, the mandate is, I must export that. I must. I cannot contain it within my personal boundaries. I'm not sure what those are. I am a jellyfish colonial organism of bad thinking and processed ideas that I don't really understand. I've got to, I've got to get rid of it. That must be why I've never felt the impulse to cancel anybody. I have never once piled on to somebody who was being aggressively unpersoned in this way. Yeah, yeah. I just don't. I heard a friend of mine recently say something similar on his podcast. And he said, you know, I just don't have it in me. And he's a fascinating guy. He's a vegan. He, uh, you know, believes in chemtrails and uh, magic crystals. And he eats a bunch of non-psychedelic traditional Chinese medicine mushrooms. And he has this, you know, unique way of viewing the world. And I love going to him because I never know what he's going to think about any particular issue. I have no idea. I'll go to him with something that I think is a slam dunk. And he'll say, nope, that's a psyop. And it's so, it's so interesting, but he's the one who said it. He's the one who said, I don't have it in me to do that. So what you are saying is so 100% true, which is that if you do have a rich inner life in which you understand not the direction that you're moving in, but the target, the punchlines that you're moving to- towards. And in doing so, it necessitates a way of life, a Tao that will get you there or will at least get you through, you don't necessarily feel the need to export hate. Because for me, hate is just a fleeting emotion. I felt hateful today and I'm getting it out on the podcast now. Yeah. But I don't I don't walk around all day. I walk around all day thinking about um if I was in the woods and I came upon a, a black bear, if I was in Glacier National Park and a black bear walked into my path, what would the course of action be if I was walking with Gus? I think about this stuff, really. This is what I, th- I don't sit there and think about politics or you know, people or anything. I think uh, about, you know, oh, what if, what happens if uh, one, one day we're hiking and we start to notice that, you know, African uh, wasps are banging into our chests and acting really aggressive. What do we do? Where do we go? How do we, how do we survive the situation? And I'm thinking about places that I want to visit. I would love to go to Iceland. I daydream about Iceland all the time and the Northern Lights and places like that. And perhaps I want your opinion on this. Is this why, is this why I have such a visceral reaction to what I'm seeing? Because if I'm secure in who I am, why do I care? Why does it seem like this in particular has such an effect on me? It's my Achilles heel and I would like to be rid of it. So I'm on the one hand asking if you have any thoughts as to why I might have this reaction. And the secondary is prescriptive insofar as what do you, should I just turn it off? Should I get a grip? You can be straight with me. 
Well, I think you're in a situation which many uh, people can really, uh, people that we admire can relate to. I certainly can. I think that what you're you're torn between is a profound spiritual sense of wonder and possibility that this plane of existence offers everywhere you turn, really. Uh, a natural phenomenon that you mentioned, the northern lights, that's simply the most breathtaking thing I think that I've ever seen. It's certainly up there. And you, the moment you mentioned it, I thought to myself, what would the effect, would it be a good thing if everyone in the world could see the Northern Lights? And I had to put that away from, from my thinking. Think about beautiful, amazing buildings of, of cathedrals and the great architectural triumphs of temples. Think about some works of, of music works of art, uh, beauty, intricacy, things that have such a level of meaning, they're what I call witnesses to themselves. If you have the sensitivity and the curiosity and the inner magnetic attraction to those things, it's very difficult to understand people who don't. And sometimes your strength of, of, of inner curiosity and integrity is such that you just see right through them and plow through them. And you can, all, you can sometimes see the wonder of them, you know, that they fit into the mosaic of magic. Hmm. But sometimes your energy level is low. You're not feeling strong enough in yourself. and it seems horrifying in a really stupid way. It's not horrifying in some beautifully grotesque way, like, you know, and say a 19th century, you know, insane asylum that is just, you know, a nightmare manifest, you know? You could at least think as a writer, well, I could I could write about that. It would be exciting. It would be it would give me something to get my you know metaphorical teeth into. But the kind of stuff that I think you're thinking is this drip feed loss of soul, loss of magic, loss of possibility. And it's just stupefying. It's like slow death by not quite a poison gas, you know, it's more like mm -hmm. just like carbon monoxide, you know, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not really anything great, you know, it's not like so powerful that, you know, it's going to just do you in quickly. No, no, no. It's going to be, it's almost like asbestos poisoning over time, you know, and you just feel like, you know, just your head is full of this shit. And these people are just, you know, it's awful. And it's never awful enough to be worth for writers writing about or painting, or it's just too stupid. It falls below the threshold of attention. And for people like us who have a belief, a religious belief, that there is nothing that is not important per se inherently so 
that violates that code. And it it's like really hot, angry metal in our heads because we think, no, God damn it, everything is interesting. We are Buddhas on the way. And then some days we realize we're just, yeah, we're not there. We're we're not yep. we're not strong today. It's getting to us. It's getting to us, you know. <laughs> that's when you need, I think, some really good old-fashioned close friends to have some bitch sessions with, to shoot the shit with, to have some targets like a bloke. Like, you know, I, I use my blowgun target range. You know, I'll, I'll if someone's really just getting to me, I'll, and if they're, you know, like a celebrity or something or, or emblematic, I'll, I'll find someone who's emblematic of that and they'll go up on one of my targets and magic. I feel better. Yeah. You know? It's good magic. Yeah. You, know? you got to get the, you got to get the bile out. Essentially. You've got to find a way to just spew it all out because everybody poops and everybody occasionally poops out of their mouth. <laughs> And you just have to go, you have to go, you get backed up. And I think that that is a good way of framing the place of things like gossip and shit talk as release valves. You know, you have to do it. There are people, uh, I do it sometimes uh, on the other podcast, who listen to the show, not solely for that, but who will send me private messages about, oh my God, what you just said. You're going to get in trouble for that. But I'm glad somebody finally said it because you just, again, you need this kind of release that ties into the, the program of social media as being one of stifling these abilities to just, I often say, why am I not allowed to look at the world that we live in, in 2023 and just say, does anybody else think that this is fucking weird? Can we just agree that this is weird? No, you're not allowed to say that. Not about some things, not about some very particular things. Uh, but I think that in lieu of doing it in public, which I feel like I'm going to pull back from a bit because then you're sort of, you're, put, you're, you're adding to the public bile and then you have to deal with the responses and whether you like it or not, it lives inside of your head for a few days and it's very distracting. It's not it's not conducive to it. I like this idea of just the private of the dude hangout and we have zoom now. So you're not even constrained by who's around you because my neighbor, Jay, he uh, helps homeless people and he's, his truck is always full of canned goods. He goes around to the different churches and sort of sets up shop across the way. He mows my lawn. He's constantly drunk, constantly just his face is just looks like it's sunburned at all times. Cause he's got a 24 pack of course light that he's just always digging into. He's a great guy. And I've had some great laughs with that dude, but I can't tell him about what's happening on Twitter because <laughs> he doesn't know bless his heart. He does other things in the real world that are more valuable than Twitter. But if I'm on it and I find some kind of, that's the other thing. What's so great about what you brought up is this idea of it not being bad enough and that being the most frustrating thing. Once Facebook got bad enough for me, I felt a sense of relief 
because I felt as though I could give myself realistic permission to 86 the whole thing and disappear. But Twitter has never been quite, it's just this almost stasis, this, you use the term drip feed. It's just a constant drip feed of banal toxicity, essentially. I'm going to use the asbestos thing too. You're giving me a lot of ammo on this, on this good, episode. Good. But, uh, but this idea of it just never quite being enough, but it does, it has to be released. You have to get it out. You have to go to friends and say, do you see the thing that I see? Right. And your friend goes, oh yeah, totally. And you think, oh my God, thank God. Thank God. I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one who's stuck in this prison of, <laughs> of this thing. That's just, like, I, you've probably seen movies this way too, where they're not bad enough to walk out of the theater but you're checking your watch and you think yeah. to yourself, Oh yeah. God, That's I wish of, this would yeah. just end. That's a good... And and then there's a coda to the movie. There's 15 more minutes and you think, Oh my God, can we please roll credits on this thing? But it's not quite bad enough. It's giving you little things. Twitter's a great example of this because sometimes I do, I've, I've sent you things that I found on Twitter that I found really interesting and that I'm glad I found and that I'm glad I could share with you some great drawings, some great thoughts, some stuff that's really funny, uh, but that's one out of every 50 tweets. Well, some of this, uh, I think, does uh, feed into the question of, well, sheer ratios, you know, yeah. and, and percentages. And I, I have sensed a real... Uh, you know, the law of diminishing return sets in. And I think that there there is a kind of 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 law that is at work there because you can see that principle working in many aspects of life. You can see it with individual relationships, with jobs, with I think a lot of people. I've heard that from many different quarters of, of people that I, I do have some, you know, uh, real contact with. Still, there's a feeling about Facebook in particular that there was a turning point and it was independent of COVID. It was just a feeling that no, somehow the algorithms are against this really expanding and, and yeah. it just, it's kind of the horizon has been reached. It's just, we're, we're a closed system now and yeah. closed systems versus open systems are really important to think about because uh, the, the, those principles are, are, are really, really handy. Uh I don't want to. I don't want to interrupt you. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna pee. I'm still listening. I'm just gonna use okay. the restroom really quickly. Okay. So okay. I just back teeth are floating. I understand. I understand. <laughs> yeah, but I I wonder if uh, and you've kind of said this, but not said it that this uh, monitoring presence of what you can and cannot say in social media terms. I think as far as I, my own situation goes, I, I only sense that coming from one ideological political direction. Uh, and I think that really needs to be said because uh, I don't know, maybe if I knew really, I'm not, I'm just not friends, close friends with, or even associates with anyone who I would describe as really conservative uh at all you know uh i mean like you might my, my areas of involvement in society are 
the arts, arts and entertainment on a more commercial level, maybe. Uh, academia, the media. These are kind of the areas that you you and I are, are connected with. And I think it's very difficult to find someone uh, who has a conservative framework in, in any terms. Uh, so this sense of, of scolding and control and cancellation, I mean, and this has now become a major media subject, and there are, you know, huge celebrities, Dave Chappelle, J.K. Rowling, people who are really getting the cancellation treatment or threats. I mean, those aren't coming from, you know, a conservative point of view. That that used to be what, what the problem was. You go back in time in terms of, you know, breakthrough comedians, Lenny Bruce really started a lot of that off. I mean, he got busted for obscenity. He was uh, back in the days when, you know, all artists, you know, felt like they they really were fighting uh, against a, a genuine establishment of Eisenhower era, you know, constraint. And that's ironically not at all where any of this is coming from. Now it's coming from the progressives, the progressive left, so to speak. If I don't know how progressive it is, but it's a puritanical framework that is constantly looking for people to misstep, to missay. Uh, we know the hot button topics. You can't even ask any sort of questions. And the moment you you do, you attract you know, the attacks. And I, I was, you know, think of Jordan Peterson, a lot of what he was saying and a lot of what he continues to say is, is really so ideologically mild. He, get, he can get hyped up and he is very articulate in a different vein than, than Christopher Hitchens, but he is enormously fluid. I, I like to listen to, I mean, I, I Jordan Peterson, Hitchens and Terrence McKenna are in my view the most articulate real-time speakers that I've ever encountered. And I'm so grateful we have a lot of video record of them. They're all distinct. They're all very idiosyncratic, or each of them is idiosyncratic, but they're just so fluent. And I think a lot of, of people are threatened by that. But I mean, where does this sense of, of brooding cancellation that anyone needs to worry about come from other than the left. You mentioned that it, it could happen on the right. I suppose it could. I just am not part of that scene at all. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You, you tend to see it on the right because I do know a lot of these people, you tend to see it on the right in terms of religious disputes. There are a lot of right wingers who are currently split on whether or not, uh, certain types of art need to be censored, particularly art that features, you know, homosexuality or transsexuality or, you know, this, that, or the other. They have their own side of the culture wars that they argue on, but you are correct in the sense that the dominant group of people are these progressives. And I would say to that, what I like to do whenever people 
affect these these cancellation things. I want to ask them, you know, what do you what are your goals? What are you trying to do? So say it's a writing community and they say, "Well, we want our community to feel safe." Does it feel do you feel safe? I don't think I think people feel less and less safe by the day to be in these kind of communities. This ambient paranoia that's floating around everybody and the feeling that you could be next directly leads to people feeling less safe. Well, I want to stamp out uh, homophobia or racism. And then I want to say, I don't think you're doing that either because I know the homophobes and they're not affected by this at all. There's nothing you could say to them that would shame them out of their opinions. Opinions, by the way, that I don't hold and you don't hold either. Well, we want to make sure that uh, there's that that you know that J.K. Rowling never works again. Got bad news for you: the Harry Potter video game just she came out. Reach. She's got a billion dollars, and the Harry Potter video game just came out, and it broke the record for the most continuous streams on Twitch. It's called Hogwarts Legacy. I'm not going to play it, but my point still stands. Doesn't matter. You're not actually doing anything. If you look at the at functionally what's happened to your communities, you've made good people less inclined to want to follow their artistic pursuits. I can't tell you how many artists and authors that I know who have scrapped projects for fear of backlash. You've stifled you've stifled speech from otherwise good people. Uh, you've turned countless people into the very Nazis that you pretend to be so afraid of, because I know that when I got canceled for my COVID views, I didn't become a Nazi, but I certainly started listening to conservative people more. And if I didn't have, if I was one of these people without a country who who don't have any real beliefs, I could see how somebody could slip into that. So you're actively driving people to the other side. You're stifling the community within. Uh, you personally aren't getting anywhere because a lot of these people still live in basements. They still don't have the publishing deal that they thought they were going to have. They've only lost, you know, they've lost their integrity, but they haven't gained anything from it. So I would, my appeal to these people would be, what do you get out of it besides the momentary dopamine rush that you get from curb stomping a random person? If it's just pure bloodlust and violence, just admit it. Admit that you like doing it. You like seeing people get hurt. And modernity has convinced you that you have to couple that with a feeling of being morally superior to the person before you do it. Back in the day, you just curb stomp somebody, take their stuff, move along. If you didn't get caught, no harm, no foul. I've read From Hell, the Alan Moore book. It's a... It was an ugly scene, but all of their goals, and this is, this is why I don't back down. And this is why I do hold the beliefs that I do. It's because at the end of the day, I have convinced me personally through the things that I say and the things that I write, I have personally changed people from the right more towards a center position. I've gotten people to get rid of some ideas that I personally think aren't cool. 
racist ideas, what have you. I have more, a more diverse friend group than all of these people. Uh, I engage with things more than them. I live a better life. My life is just more fun. I enjoy things. I'm able to watch a movie without a checklist to make sure nothing in it offends me. I'm happier. I spread more positivity. And I actually move the world towards a vision of what I think it should look like. So that's my pitch. That's my pitch to these people. You're you're not doing what you think you're doing. You're just doing a stupid human thing that's existed since forever. Well, I'm interested if you think this is a historical phase that will somehow grow out of, but I I had another thought <laughs> and I don't want to give you another sort of imaginative story challenge when you've already got one, but I do actually, because um, suppose for a moment that you, something goes wrong in a sort of Kafka-esque way and it's not clear to you what it is, but you are institutionalized. And this is not the kind of, of institutions of the past, particularly those that were uh, used as, as settings for a lot of material in the 60s and 70s. There are drugs being used, absolutely, but we don't have uh, electroconvulsive therapy uh, it's it's low key by the standards of TV shows like The Prisoner or movies and books like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It's pretty decent physical living, but you are confined and you are not really leaving this place to get back to your son and your wife until the authorities uh, say so. And you are engaged in a lots of therapy sessions, group discussions with people. Uh, there are certain things that you must believe in. Uh, biological sex is, is not real, for instance. Uh, there are lots of principles that you, you have to go along with. What's your strategy? You have a goal. You have a goal to get back to that very room that you're in, I see you in right now to uh, a growing son, a loving wife, uh, to get back to your place in the world. However grumpy and pissed off you might be day to day, you want to get back to that, that life. And the question I have for you is, what will you do to, to, to be able to be released? How, how will you convince the authorities that you're okay to to go what will your strategy be are you going to try to say fuck it and just escape say no i'm not going to they're not going to take my mind i'm going to be uh, a a powerful noble anti-hero and if they shoot me down in the street that's the way the movie's going to end or uh, are you going to think, well, I'm smarter than they are. I'm going to put up a facade. I'm going to get my chameleon suit on and do camouflage. And I'm going to use my, my capacity of, of triadic mind to run multiple channels. And the inner David that's sane and Buddha-like is going to hold tight within and project the woke progressive camouflage nonsense. You know, what's your strategy going to be? 
This is one of the most interesting and difficult questions that anyone has ever asked me because my first thought process would be uh, I would be doing some serious weighing of how much I thought Gus needed me at that point in his life, right? How much does he need his dad mm-hmm. at that point? Uh, and that the answer to that question would determine what I did. So if, uh, if I determine, you know, he's at the age now where I've taught him enough and, you know, I've left behind all these writings and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I'm not a person who believes that death is the end. I think that we're permanent celestial beings that reincarnate and that we're dropped into this with a complete memory wipe. And it's our job to rediscover that. And I also think that people like you or my wife or my son are people who I've known for a very long time and who I'll know again at some point. So to me, death would be be okay as long as I wasn't doing a disservice to him. If I if it was and I felt like he needed me some more, I would create a tulpa of myself. Absolutely. I would use my meditation. I would think on this for a long, 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 long time. And I would create a separate personality in my mind. And that personality would come out whenever it was needed to. And I'd swallow my pride and I would uh I wouldn't try to break out. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do any of that because that runs the risk of death, which is the same thing. The escape yeah. part is what I would try to do if I thought, you know, fuck it. He he'll be good. He'll be fine. Then we're doing we're doing some Steve McQueen shit in there. But uh in this way, yeah, I would I would I would go to the struggle sessions. I'd wear the dunce cap. I would say what needed to be said and I'd get back out there. And as soon as the coast was clear, I would go to to Gus and be like you're not going to believe the shit they made me say in there is crazy because mm-hmm. then you can ritualize uh, killing that tulpa. You can kill that part of you. Cause I don't, I don't think people who, who don't believe in the type of metaphysics that I believe in uh, can think, think that like, if you fake something that it's just, it's not really who you are. I think that it very much can become who you are if you're not careful. So there would have to be some cleansing and some, some pushing away, but those are the two options, right? And what I would do would depend on, you know, which hopefully at that stage I would know because I'd have a good enough relationship with him to get a bead on where he was at and, and see if he's on the right path. Um, also something that would come into effect would, or come into my mind as a factor would be what his, you know, father being killed by the state would do to him because you could very easily have an ISIS situation on your hand, right? Where he becomes radicalized. I mean, it happens every day in the Middle East. So well, you go you back know, to Iceland that you want to go. That was the whole theme of, of the, of you know, medieval saga literature. Yes. Yeah. 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 You don't, you don't want the blood debt that that would incur. So there's a romanticism to going out in a hail of bullets and, I understand that my gut feeling would be to do that would be to say, you know, fuck these people. I'm going to, I'm never giving up my principles ever, but life's a little bit more complicated than that. And I like the way you frame this too, because it's, we're in 
we are in that room to a certain degree right now because these people are not above going after making your family's life hell. I don't know if you saw this recently, but there's a conservative pundit named Lauren Southern, and she was banned from Airbnb for being a conservative pundit. I don't know what she says. Could be some heinous stuff. None of my business. I don't care. So she was banned from Airbnb, but not just that. Her parents were banned from Airbnb for being associated with her, right? So these people will go after you in, you know, people love to make fun of the kind of things that I'm saying, because they'll be like, oh yeah, that's really sending you to the gulag. You can't use Airbnb anymore, but the spirit's there. It's one step away from that same impulse. Yeah, to do yeah that. I, I agree with you. I, I think that that um, it's not the good. I, I think that's only used in in very select circumstances, and oftentimes I've 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 heard it more with people who are pretty major celebrities, and what they're losing out on or the attack on them is is nothing in compared to sort of their reputation as and, though it can't be it, it can't just suck on its own like that, that's yeah. somebody like louis ck you know that's an awful thing for a human he jokes about it i've listened to his stand-up recently it's still very funny but he jokes about it and you can tell that he's you know he's working through the serious pain no matter what you think of what he did or didn't do uh it's an awful thing for a human being to go through people kill themselves all the time going through these kind of things so it doesn't have to be going to the gulag knowing that millions of people hate your guts and want you to die is pretty that's like a nightmare being realized you know uh well and people who don't really know you at all i mean it's just completely bizarre um yeah Yeah. i mean i I don't know if but so do you think we're going to get past this somehow or not when we started this show, I said yes. I thought that this was something that would burn itself out. My answer is still yes, but I think it's going to take longer. And I believe that two things are going to have to happen. And I think we're going to see them happen in short order. Number one, the material conditions of the Western world are going to have to decline rapidly essentially so that people have real problems again, mm-hmm. which is beginning already. I don't know about you, but my food bill is crazy. How oh, much good. that's jumped oh, up. Good. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, the second thing that's going to happen, and we can go back. I'll make a note. 139, I'm predicting it. I am predicting a kind of, uh, was it, was it, Franz Ferdinand, who was assassinated. Who is the man who was assassinated that essentially kicked off World War One? Yes, it was. It was the Austrian. Yeah. 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 There is going to be a figure like that who gets canceled. And it's going to be so perfectly, deliciously balanced that it will split the left into two perfect camps. And the contradictions and the complexities of the cancellation are going to be such that they can't help but fight each other. And this is going to spiral off into many online proxy wars, and they're essentially going to eat each other. It's not going to have a political effect because they'll get in line and vote for the Democrat Party. That's not the issue. 
but there is going to be one person and I feel bad for whoever this person is who does something that's just so perfectly interpretable in both ways that the whole thing self-immolates essentially and they eat each other. And after that, everybody picks up the pieces and says, wait, what are we doing? What are we fighting about? Because in my opinion, the same way as when you pull the plug on your sink and you watch a, a leaf make those spirals down the drain. And then yeah, as it gets Valerie, closer and closer, yeah, yeah. yeah, as it gets closer and closer, it gets tighter and tighter. And it, I feel like we're in that spiral right now. And a lot of things are bouncing off of each other. And I feel like the event is coming, which sounds more ominous than it really is. It'll be very silly. And I'm sure we'll cover it on this show. But I will say, like, this is the event. This is the thing. This is what finally gets people. It's going to be a beloved figure who says something that's judged as innocuous by some and completely devastating by others. But I don't know who that figure could be. It could be... uh, I don't know. It could be AOC. AOC could do something. She's she was as a big figure right now. It could be. Uh, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a. It could be John Stewart, because it's definitely he, American. I mean, because AOC yeah. it, it doesn't have any profile outside America really, at all, uh, and that's not surprising. She's a young congressman. Uh, well, let me. Here are three things that I think that are, uh, well, they're, they're channels, they're media unto themselves, but they're, they're cultural institutions that, and they're not of, of equal scope or magnitude, but I think their future is, is very uncertain. I'll start with the one I think whose future I think is very certain. I think by the time Gus is old enough to be looking at colleges or universities. American higher learning, tertiary education, college and universities will look entirely different. They won't have all disappeared. I'm not saying that. That's too bold and melodramatic a claim. But all that we used to mean about liberal arts will have vanished entirely. I think there are going to be some new uh, schools starting up. Austin, I think, is a new university that is is getting some traction. There are going to certainly be some conservative-based schools that uh, are maybe religiously affiliated, but they're going to be focused on traditional curriculum, and they're going to be forced to uh, present to the world as their point of difference what would have been a conventional uh, liberal arts college background, an affirmation of Western civilization. Uh, It's certainly from the arts and humanities point of view. But all that we know of, of of the the parts of academia that are so dysfunctional today, basically arts and the humanities and the social sciences, where gender studies have come from, where this whole sense of destabilization and very proud Marxist deconstruction of traditional learning, 
all of that's going to fall away. And it is in the process of doing that now. Boys or male students are leaving that unless they are queer, gay, whatever. Uh, but even so, not it's enrollments are way down. Enrollments are way down across the board, really, in alarming terms. And I see that very physically at my university. I can walk around and photograph it and video it and show it. Yeah, yeah. But the arts, humanities, social sciences are just not delivering the uh, vocational value that people now come to expect. Forget education for its own sake. People have got to earn a living. And millennials, Gen Z, and whatever we call the, the emergent generation to follow, Gen A or whatever, uh, they don't really give a shit about learning. They, they It's about making money. It's about getting as much fun and likes in social media terms and enjoying and freaking out before the whole world dies. That's the nihilism that really is underpinning a lot of this. So the main information indoctrination channel that has worked up to the moment and is working full bore right now, you can smell the engines overheating you know you mm -hmm, can mm -hmm. there's just not enough lubrication there's there's friction there's ambient heat and noise and it's just not and and no one really knows how to repair those machines and so those are in a state of serious serious terminal dysfunction and i think within the next 10 to 15 years, you will see large physical blocks of university campuses uh, shuttered or turned over to become corporate campuses. You notice how when corporate, it, it's not the Microsoft head office, it's the Microsoft campus, you know, everything is a campus. Well, that's because they're taking over all the, there are no, uh, there's not going to be any campuses left. It's all going to be corporatized. And they just don't like the, you know, industrial park. Oh, no, we can't have that, you know. So the campus was, was a precursor of this, this collapse of academia. And I think that's going to change the rate of indoctrination, the rate of flow. There's going to be a whole bunch of people going out to the workforce. They're not going to get gigs because the people who trained them and brain printed them, well, they're not leaving their jobs for quite some time. And we don't need any more people, you know, doing the those jobs. And that's not going to work. So all of that is in process right now. There is a smell about academia, unless you are the Ivy League, major private schools like Stanford, and a few elite schools in certain areas. Like my university has a couple of areas they're protected in, you know, because they're doing really well. But generally speaking, no, unless you're there for that specific reason. So it's going to become very targeted. I think the other two things I was thinking of and watching the Grammys convinced me of this. I think popular music has reached a nadir that it can't recover from. I think there have been many forces to destabilize that industry and to break it up from the financing of it, how you monetize it, how you reach audience, brand loyalties, connections, genres, innovation, it's dying. 
It is dying. I ask 18 to 21 year old students who are native to Las Vegas, whose parents, and maybe they worked in the industry here. That's how food's gotten on the table. I said, what is the entertainment of Vegas going to look like in 20, 30 years time? And they're interested, you know, and they go, no idea. It's really hard to work out. It's really hard to work out. I mean, are we going to become, you know, is Harry Styles going to have a resident, you know, what about Taylor Swift? Is that obvious? Well, yeah, it would be on the old model, but who's the audience for that? You know, so that's breaking apart. The other thing finally is related is sports, professional sports. I have been a keen professional sports fan, certain era, and I've, I've, I felt that sense of uh, just being over it. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take some interest in the Super Bowl. I like those two teams, but I feel the whole thing is strained. It's too corporatized. The woke thing was way too much after COVID, or you know, plus COVID. Ticket prices way too much. Everything is just too much. And I don't see Gus's age group going along with that program. I don't know if we'll get back to like what, you know, skateboarding is, usually, you know, extreme sort of street sports, make it up yourself, climbing trees, you know, doing your own thing. Maybe that's maybe we're going to break away from spectatorism. Maybe that's the link here. That would be cool in my view. And I think yours, too. But those channels, those anchor points of the current cultural paradigm, and I yeah. don't think our paradigm is, is deserving of that name, they're fading away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're fading away. I know those three are, are, are doomed. They're yes. doomed. Yeah, the one thing that would change all of that would be a war would be a, a, a hot conflict yeah which isn't a non-zero possibility no i th i think that if you have some serious infrastructural damage to most of europe russia other parts of the world hopefully not through nuclear means you know good old-fashioned fighting in the streets that would well this is dark but i'll just say it you'd have a lot of dead people you'd have a renewed sense of patriotism which would translate back into things like sports and pop stars and the idols who we look at to guide our country and it might might kind of change the way that higher education is going I don't want that to happen. I would much prefer people just go outside. Another interesting thing about war, though, I think that a war, particularly with China, would completely destroy social media, which would be a good thing. And I think that they would hinge on TikTok because TikTok, as we both know, is 100% a weapon, a psychological weapon that China sends to America. Chinese kids are not allowed to see the shit that American kids see. It's a very focused bomb that has been sent over to us. So if we were to get into a conflict with them and TikTok goes away, that wouldn't mean that the underlying dopamine injection 
mechanism would go away, but it might start to create some laws about what people are allowed to look at. Things essentially have to get so bad that as somebody who can, I consider myself largely anarchic in my politics, but if there was one totalitarian bone that I had in my body, it would be to stamp down on social media (laughs) and get rid of phones. That's what the classic, if you were dictator of the world, what would you do? I'd get rid of phones. I'd be the most. I'd be the simple as that. I actually, I think that is the medium of 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 real dissemination of of chaos, and we need an infrastructure collapse. And I think that's not out of the question entirely. Uh, I mean, our I think there's a lot of reason to um, to see that a, a tactical solution to conflict could be just you know. Uh, well, taking a few electricity grids out and taking, you know, and, and therefore uh, the uh, the mobile phone system as well that could go. I think that would probably, you know, be a good thing. And in some ways, this is the underlying anxiety sort of that's acknowledged by all post-apocalyptic themes, that there's this thin veneer of civilization that has really put forward a lot of nonsense that we we believe in it, which has currency because we believe in it. Only that. If belief equals currency, it has no objective reality. And that all of that would go down and we'd be back to the law of the jungle and no one would be talking any woke shit or any ideological <laughs> very quickly. You know, mm-hmm. it would get down to a, a very and and the trepidation people would feel dealing with each other would be real, not oh, this is unsafe. No, it would be unsafe physically, you know? Like, are those people armed? How much ammo do they have? You know, those kinds of questions. Not, are they going to say something mean, you know? Yeah, and if you believe that the universe does move towards a kind of stasis, then where, from my perspective at the moment, it feels like war is inevitable from a Gaia perspective, just to sort of even all this kind of stuff out. So when we're talking about our projects and what we try to do, what what I'm really doing when I'm talking to you or talking to Kelby or typing things into stupid Twitter or whatever is in some small way trying to plant a few seeds that could potentially lead to a better outcome and back to that kind of stasis to avert the possibility of a war. Because when you get people out of this cycle that they're in, when you're able to break that cl- that uh, uh, thought terminating cliche way of processing information, and you get people back to doing things like hiking and going outside and putting their feet in the grass, reading novels, uh, listening to, just listen to the Beatles. It's great music. I've been going on a Beatles kick lately. When you get people back when you don't progress anymore when you kind of pull back a bit other things start to pull back too consumerism pulls back a a bit you know when people go back to owning albums and records they don't need to buy new ones because they have a library which isn't always the case there are collectors who buy a bunch of that stuff but largely if you have your favorite albums you just keep those things you don't feel the need to buy new stuff buy a good pair of shoes all of that the lofty goal, and I think now is the time for lofty goals. I think now is the time to sound a bit pretentious and a bit, you know, because this 
shit is serious. The lofty goal of the things that I do besides having fun and hanging out with my buds and whatever is to just kind of tell people that it's not weird to just not want a part of any of this in a nonviolent way. You know, like I'm not advocating for people to become Ted Kaczynski and blow things up. I don't think any solution to any problem that ends in mass death is valid, let alone morally justified. Or but, sane. <laughs> yeah, or sane. There uh, always is that. There always is that. Yeah, yeah. But I guess I'll wrap. I'll, I'll I'll stop rambling there. But I do think that if more people talk to each other and developed that inner core set of unique beliefs that are malleable to a certain extent, but that are not cut and paste jellyfish words that you read online. My hunch is that the world would start to look a little bit more like a better place. So I think that suggests, and this is a broad uh, theory that I think needs more focused articulation, but it's certainly, you can find it in very, it kind of moves sort of intermittently like a, a gas or a vapor that's not fully uh, distributed. That part of the, one way to think of the problem in very simple terms, but still there's a lot of accuracy that could be fleshed out, is that globalization, the global thinking, global mind, is simply not a workable idea for humans. People don't have the geography. They don't have the, the multilingual perspectives. They don't have the time, attention, and energy, and focus to be able to deal with that. We are, by definition, if we're going to survive, we're going to have to become relocalized and on a much smaller scale to rediscover the family, rediscover friends, to rediscover. And I think we see this in a lot of ways. We see parents all across America for both good and bad, getting more involved in their children's schooling. And that's yeah. ideologically split. Sometimes it's because of their, their fear of drag queen story hour. And, you know, that may be so ridiculous and overstated to some people on the left. It may be very valid for other people who think, no, I don't know if I want my kid being exposed to, uh, these sort of choices at age, you know, eight or six. Uh, but I'm certain I don't want those things prioritized over reading, writing, uh, arithmetic, you know, some basic uh, academic skills that school used to be about. Um, so we're going to see, I think, an enforced and also a chosen sense of localizing and communityizing the pirate radio idea that we started with and this was one of the aspects of the 70s that really was i think very positive and powerful sort of the whole earth catalog kind of idea mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. and i think that we kind of lost that we lost it because of consumerism because new phones and the technology silicon valley uh excitement of of constant new and a lot of privilege on everybody's part in terms of of economic standards relative to the rest of the world and we're going to have to give that up 
that's that that stuff is not working. We don't have to say it's evil. We just have to say it's dysfunctional and not mm. sustainable. You know, that's all. Absolutely. You know, just rediscover yourself, your family, your community. Uh, buy fewer things. Uh, entertain yourselves more. You know, that's Pick up a blowgun. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and whatever it takes on a giant cultural scale to bring that about. And I think it is worth holding over for either next episode or or future. We haven't really talked much about war because we're basically, you know, not downhearted people, even if we sometimes sound grumpy and angry. Uh, But I think war is something that that of a tactical uh that sounds silly, doesn't it? It's a tactical nuclear war. I love that. But mm-hmm. what we mean is something that isn't going to cause total destruction for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, mm-hmm. a more old-fashioned kind of, as you said, fighting in the straits, uh, which, you know, sounds like what, you know, maybe maybe there's something strangely good about that. Oh, I like that. I like that. My, uh, well, you know what? I'll save it for next time. I'll leave it on that. That's a very provocative thought. So that's something to think about for next time. Would you like to hear? I, I'm ready for the inducers. And did you think of like a, a kind of other than a fixer? What What are you? If somebody asked you what, what your gig oh, is. Oh, easy. Yeah, I'm a, blade, I'm a blade. I'm a blade runner. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 You are. That's exactly okay. Yeah. 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 I'm a blade runner. Um. So this movie, as I'm seeing it as a film, would start off with our hero. We'll just call him Deckard, just for ease of of getting that image in your head, who is tasked with finding the spawn of these science experiments. I love that the spawn is very nice. Yeah. 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 Juicy and, biological. Yeah. And he is the first one that he finds lives in a landfill in a big dumpster and has spinning arms with blades on them that he has to use his more physical skills to get rid of. So I want to start it off with a kind of a bang. In fact, it could almost be a montage sequence of different physically mutated people uh, who he has to dispatch in some kind of way. So you really, you hook the viewer with this, like he's fighting monsters. Well, he is tasked with uh, finding a particular uh, experiment here called, and I took this directly from our conversation, the accelerationists, right? Okay. Because a common, the sort of Voigt-Kampf test that our hero administers to these uh, mutants is one of blatant and then increasingly subtle bits of propaganda. What these MK Ultra experiments have, have done is through this experimentation, they have been made immune to state propaganda. So our guy is a propagandist, essentially, and he's going through and he's asking them questions that seem innocuous, but he's judging whether or not they've been completely uh, 
deprogrammed in that sense or not. So I thought that his search for the accelerationist could take him to some cool locales, Taos, because I'd want to shoot on location. Uh-huh. Uh, the hills of Kentucky, probably Ashland. I've always wanted to see a really cool fight around those mounds, you know, all the cool psychic energy that happens with that. We'd have to go to Oklahoma and we'd also go to a redwood forest. So essentially he would discover, he'd go to a single mother's house and he would discover a child there who he administers this test to. And the child almost passes, but when he leaves, he uses one dirty trick, which is he knocks a vase off of the wall and the child psychically catches it before it hits the ground. So now he knows that this kid is one of these advanced models who has telekinetic powers, but he's a little bit sweet on the mother. We have to have a love interest here. Yes, we do. So he begins to find ways to cover up that this child is one of these spawn. And uh, the accelerationist is continuing his streak of cutting out the tongues of prominent politicians and thought leaders. I was thinking it'd be cool to have like a Tucker Carlson bow tie type of guy, like a picture of him with his tongue cut out and maybe his eyes missing too. You know, he's really trying to send a message. So over uh, the course of his investigation, he's begins seeing this woman begins to uh, fall in love and she in a pivotal scene says to him, you know, I know that my husband, my ex-husband was one of these people, but I love my kid and I just want the ability to raise her as a normal kid. And something clicks for him all of a sudden. And he realizes like, oh, these people just for the most part, probably want to live normal lives. It's not their fault, let alone that they were experimented on uh, uh, besides that fact, now these are the children of the people who were experimented on. So he has this real crisis of faith, right? Until he discovers that the husband of this woman is the accelerationist, right? So now he's conflicted. Now he's going after this little girl's dad and we'll have scenes to set all this up where she's drawing I pictures like of her that. daddy. I like and all that. this kind of stuff. And the, the, the film ends... I always like the going native angle. So I want the two of them to fight, but I want there to be some real good back and forth dialogue. And uh, just when he, our hero is about to deliver the killing blow, the girl shows up and yells, no, don't kill my dad. And so he doesn't. And he ends up becoming uh, one of the inducers, sort of like uh, uh, prime agents in the world. So that that would be the that would be the the thrust of the whole story. But I think it offers a lot of cool opportunities to see some practical gore effects. Uh, I think the physical creatures that this happens to, especially when he locates the sort of compound that the accelerationist is in, you can go completely nuts, Japanese anime style with people having different modifications, different psychic powers pyrokinesis all sorts of sort of fun, a fun a really fun uh, uh romp through the last 30 minutes of the film to its climactic final battle a kind of john wick with mad max mutants involved but that's that's what i got i think that's fantastic and i'm still recovering and enjoying uh your uh 
you know, the uh, the Terminator three Wiseman story of, of bloodshed in the manger and that, that <laughs> you've got a good instinct for mayhem. I, I think that I would love to see you one day have some true budget and get to do a really proper uh, gore laden movie that was up to your standards, that was worthy oh, yeah. of your imaginative framework. I think that's very interesting. I like the accelerationist. Is a, um, that might be a possible title for this episode. I think there's some interesting mm-hmm. stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I like cool. the idea of you, of the Blade Renardia going after the inducers. And then I think that the, the dramatic problems that result seem very credible to me so mm-hmm. yeah i like yeah, it it's basically this like this you know it's this guy who isn't a bad dude and who certainly doesn't think that he's doing a wrong thing because he's been programmed to think that these people are terrorists and in this kind of classic you know it's very applicable to today where yeah. if you if you were to ask some of your left-wing friends if you were to introduce uh uh me to them and you were to say this is and I don't know why you would introduce me this way. Maybe it came up in conversation. You'd say, you know, he's kind of a COVID truther guy. They'd have all sorts of thoughts about who I was. <laughs> and probably some of them do. Uh, but over time, over a few beers, you, I think that if they didn't kill me first, if they let me get a word in edgewise, they would at least see, oh, he's a normal, a normal guy. And I think we need more stories like that. More stories of the, of the monsters, so to speak. Yeah, well, particularly if we're going to have people talking about safety, we need Mm -hmm. to then look to what what we're defining as dangerous. You know, Mm -hmm. we need some more interesting ideas of what constitutes danger. Yeah, that's my, you know, I I think that's a really simple way to say what's wrong with what's wrong with today is our ideas of danger are kind of either pedestrian or so overblown as to be uh, I don't know, it just reminds me of just very silly people, you know, running around without any idea of what they're doing. And you just yeah. want to turn the hose on them, you know? Yeah, yeah. The people are worried, as essentially, when you get down to it, when you have these conversations with people. Uh, if you take me, for example, you would say, well, do you think that David is going to go out and, you know, bomb an abortion clinic? They'd say, no, no, of course not. Do you think that he's going to go join the KKK and engage in some cross burnings? No, I don't think that either. It's like, but what do you think that he's going to do then? And when you get down to it, it's just that he's engaging in thought crime. It's thought crime. Yeah, well, I think we need to sort of take that up for because this is obviously really, really on your on your mind, and I think it's certainly not on you know not off my mind. It's very much on my radar. I'll tell you what I think would be interesting. Uh, I'd like to sort of see that uh, put into the mix with two major concerns of our time. And I'm not sure when I've tried to diagram them, I haven't been able to like, you know, work out how they fit mm-hmm. But I'm thinking about privacy and surveillance. Mm-hmm. I think those, those are, well, they're unavoidable in terms of, of, you know, issues of today, they relate totally to uh, cyber technology, the metaverse idea, social media, everything we've talked about. But I don't think we have a frame for for how they fit in. 
And I'm always amazed at, at the people who aren't concerned about it, you know, uh, whereas it, it, you could say that's another way that, that wokeness and this current era diverges entirely from the 60s and 70s, which we've spoken of at many different points across many episodes, that that was a, a definite concern of that time. You know, Big Brother is what, you know, now we're not really sure who Big Brother is. You know, we've all accepted it, haven't we? I mean, yeah. we just kind of know. I think we dropped our pants and are just, you know, <laughs> hoping Big Brother, you know. Just hoping that Big Brother has some, has some lube. Yeah. 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 I, I, I just I really quick, I quickly sketched out a, a diagram. It's a on the Y axis, there's privacy and surveillance. And on the X axis, I have safety and danger. So I mean, mm-hmm. that might be a start. But I like um, that. I think that's a good start. I think I'll work yeah. on that basis too. I like that simple, you know, uh, a mm-hmm. starting point. Anyway, we can flesh that out with some interesting points. That's a good exit. Let, let's say that's a good starting point to uh, mm-hmm. to think mm-hmm. about for next time because I, I privacy and surveillance need to be put into this framework. And I think that safety and danger are great poles that have come mm-hmm. and it's kind mm-hmm. of come organically. And I think if we compared actually our physical diagrams for that, mm-hmm. I think that would be really interesting to speak to that. Um, mm-hmm. We could almost exchange them without that much explanation and have the others speak to each other's matrix. I like that. I like that as a thought. I like that a lot. Yeah, we'll be in touch about that. All right. Well, to get into our closing segments here, do you have a tip and a tool for us? Yeah, the the tool is complex, and we might need to devote a a bit more time to that next time. But I want to plant some seeds because it... There are many uh, very practical levels to this. Um, One of the things that pisses me off personally about social media is whenever anyone says, another day I haven't used algebra, you know, and we often say, you know, that if you're not careful about the language you use, language will use you. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is true of, I mean, it's very, it's obvious to me that algebra is using these people. Uh, and I did get into an actual fight with someone and I said, well, you know, do you, would you ever say another day I haven't used astronomy? You know, I said, mm-hmm. would that be the right way to put that? You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was seen to be uh being uh, dismissive of someone's intellectual capabilities and then I call them, you know, just a complete uh, mental pygmy. Uh, <laughs> but consider for a moment, the, 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 it, this tool connects with a few of our deep ideas about some of the, the most significant problems of our time relate back mm-hmm. to Uh, George Lakoff and the idea of bad metaphor management, getting trapped in metaphors and not seeing that we're trapped, that we're in metaphorical frames. And the British philosopher Gilbert Ryle. And I thought, well, you you know, there's a lot of hidden math Mm -hmm. that exists 
embedded and within the deep structures of language. We don't have to be real mathematicians. We don't even have to be conceptual metaphorical mathematicians. We do need to know that that's what's going on. And the phrase that that tipped me was one we hear all the time. Life isn't fair. Okay, three words, simple, basic sentence in English. This near atrophied phrase, you know, will never die. We will keep hearing it, despite the fact that it's pretty empty of, of meaning, really. But it it tweaks something in me. And I thought, you know, there is a really deep, profoundly confused, but nonetheless fully structured worldview inherent in those three words, that phrase. And I think if we start to rejig that, so I started doing some drawing and I, I thought, what am I hearing in that sentence structure? It's a negation, but it's a negation that really suggests, well, life isn't fair. Therefore, something should be, that conditional mm. should be. This is my first level of the tool for, for listeners. That is the most disturbing word in the English language. Should is enormously problematic. It's problematic from a time travel point of view. It's problematic from a moral point of view. And it's problematic from this hidden math point of view. Because think about it, life isn't fair. Somewhere not too far behind there is an extremely strange form of algebra that is strange because it's so unexamined and yet so pervasively assumed. X plus Y should equal Z. Life isn't fair. I have done X plus Y. and it, Well, we have completely unexamined the core term of what fair would actually be. So we have an equation that is in, exerting enormous influence on our expectations of the world and therefore predetermining perception, creating yeah. whole categories that is sucking mental energy, alertness, and attention when we desperately need it in so many other ways. We are living in this hypothetical world of shoulds with a phantom algebra that we've never really gotten our hands on. And what's more, we don't really know where it, it comes from. You know, and I it got me thinking, I suddenly realized there, there truly is a point in reading Immanuel Kant. Because he does talk clearly about where knowledge comes from. Take two fundamental forms, a priori knowledge and a posteriori knowledge. Yep. And people may think, well, that sounds pretentious because it's in Latin and stuff, but a priori is inherent. A priori, mm -hmm. knowledge, once you, you don't need to say a bachelor is a single person. That's inherent in the idea of bachelor. It's by definition. That's what a priori knowledge is. So it's becoming familiar with certain concepts. And we start doing that as children very quickly. And to connect to the George Lakoff thing, one of the first things we get our little heads and hands around are prepositional frames, up, down, 
you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and peekaboo, you know, why open close, yeah. you know, because it's prepositional and perceptual. The other thing we stream of knowledge that Kant talks a lot is a posteriori. How do you know it's raining or not raining? Well, you could get, you could maybe trust your weather report or you could stick your head out the window. So it's yeah. life experience. It's evidence. And evidence is where I'm really going with this. And that's kind of my, um, I want to tie that into our new commitment to privacy and uh, uh, surveillance, because I think what we establish and, and accept as evidence today is, is so crucial to everything. Third thing, hearsay, and in highfalutin terms, education. Okay, mm-hmm. we can learn and develop that way, but we have to believe it, we have to trust it. Very problematic. Instinct. Well, instinct is a deeply confused idea when it comes to humans. We're cool talking about instinct with dogs and all other all other animals, the whole animal kingdom, down to colonial hydrozoans like the Portuguese man of war. But we're not really clear on what it means for us. So where do we get this idea of life isn't fair or... I keep hearing that Carly Simon song. That's the way I've always heard it should be. The This is the world that we're carrying along with us as ideologues. Yeah. Yeah. This is yeah. driving the social media mm-hmm. frenzy. Where did it fucking come from? Mm-hmm. It's not a priori knowledge. It's not inherent in the world because that's trying to deny objective reality. There's nothing inherent in the world. That's what the progressives want us to believe. A posteriori, well, that's indoctrination of some kind, whether it's, you know, approved or unapproved, but there's a definite chain of of command to that. And that's linked to education and hearsay and instinct. Well, we don't know, but somehow this, that's the way it should be. That is the hidden mathematics that are, that's going on. And for me, it focused down to that equal sign, and I suddenly turned it around, and I had two parallel lines running. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it it kind of freaked me out because it's just it should. Anytime you take a symbol that is well balanced in graphic design terms, it should look kind of normal, but it doesn't mm-hmm. to me. It looks like it's missing a third leg, or it's something's wrong with it. So my tool is try to get your hands on these hidden mathematical expressions that underlie our values and particularly the ideology conflicts of today and flip that equal sign around because that will make you then assess whether or not the terms are even equal. Have you even defined what the Z is? Do you even know what the X plus the you, you're you've got these we're, we're all doing it. We've all got these equations of how things should balance and you know what yeah do we where did we get those ideas from? Spend a few moments peeling that apart. And I hope that's a big tool but I'm 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 gonna do more work on it myself but you kind of get an idea. What any any thoughts on that? I think that the first thing that came to mind when you said life isn't fair, a good rewording of that should, I just said should. <laughs> the conditional frame, you see? It's hard to get out of. It is hard, isn't it? But a good rewording of that is life is surprising. Um, I think that 
you know, uh, I think that that adds the element of surprise to it. And it naturally follows that you would then become curious about these. The text that you sent me with the uh, with the equal sign turned perpendicularly. So it looks like the twin towers in a field yeah. of static. Uh, there's something there too, which I, I won't go into, but yeah. uh, the fact that it feels like it's missing something makes me then turn it back on its side. And the equal side being three makes so much more sense religiously to how things should meet in a kind of Trinity instead yeah, of a duality. I think know? that's and, very insightful. And we've got our third man in the woods. Yeah. We've got, you know, there's something going on with this third man thing that's linking all of this together. Uh, and as a side note, uh, you've just ki- you've just gotten me interested in mathematics in general, which is something that I've ignored for 36 years because I'm not good at it. Although a friend of mine has informed me that uh, he's got a mathematician friend who says uh, is fond of saying nobody's good at mathematics. Um, so I, I'm going to look into this a bit myself because you know what, what always got me was something that you mentioned when I would, I was in algebra two, I remember, and I just couldn't make the leap of what is the Z. I would see these, these math formulas and I would think to myself, okay, but what is X? And they would say, I, I don't know. It's, this is algebra, dude. You're you're thinking about this all wrong, but I I do like the idea of, and this could potentially be the final nail in the coffin that leads me down the road to gematria and other schizophrenic practices. But <laughs> <laughs> well, it, there's an occult element to all this that's just undeniable, and it's been there mm-hmm. since the beginning of 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 math, going back to who is it? Who's the who's the mathematician who said? that when you start to drink from the cup of calculus you uh you lose god but you always find him at the bottom of the glass all these mathematicians there's a, a french one whose name's escaping me i watched a documentary on him Thank you. I, I wonder the more recent guy died recently uh lived as a hermit and he's got a bunch of writings that have not been translated into english they're in an archive but apparently, according to this documentary, he somehow mathematically proved the existence of God. And, you know, the the hook of the whole thing is nobody wants to talk about it, but he figured it out. He figured out how to prove God exists through math. Um, it's never going to get – I'm never going to get tired of that idea. It's mm-hmm. always going to be mysterious. It's always going to be insane. It's always going to be mm-hmm. this cult magic working its way because they're you know it, it's a really uh well it's it's the definition of potent magic i think you know the the formula the spell and mm-hmm. language and, and math you know oscillate in terms of their mm-hmm. power back and mm-hmm. forth but i think getting excited about the hidden mathematics that are are working on the conceptual metaphorical level it's so many uh, junctures of language and culture is a little bit a way to break free of some of these constraints and to interrogate some of our own ideas before we start interrogating other people. But I think it is important to have that as a rhetorical tool to, to not 
listen to nonsense mm-hmm. without understanding it as nonsense. You know? The person, by the way, is named Alexander Grothendike. Grothendike oh, is his name. He's one of the, apparently he's, uh, he was a rising star in the world of math and uh, reinvented. Uh, he, well, he was a leading figure in the creation of modern algebraic geometry. His research extended the scope of the field and added elements of commutative algebra, homological algebra, sheaf theory, and category theory. And that's all very well and good, but he also became a hermit and started writing strange occult texts after he figured something out. So worth worth checking out. It is interesting to note, you know, this, and this is very true of all the great math geniuses is they they tend to move across disciplines and embrace many different uh lines of inquiry but they actually add and develop and grow the framework of uh, the taxonomy of of mathematics i don't think you could say that about uh writers i don't i really don't i don't think writers are uh, creators of forms anymore you know mm. Kerouac said that called Charlie Parker that in a, in a platonic sense that I mean I don't think we're getting new you know multimedia sort of possibilities and stuff I, I don't see new forms being created new branches new developments new, I, I think that none of the energy culturally is in that line of human activity anymore I mm. think I, and I think we got to get it back somehow. Um, but you'll you'll like the tip because um, I also see, did you see that photo I sent of that beautiful calligraphy set? Mm-hmm. Oh man, I really wish I I thought I I want to get that for myself. I wanted to get it for you. I just we need more budget. But yeah. <laughs> for, for people who have ever pursued calligraphy uh, in a Japanese or Chinese sense. It's just so worthwhile. It's just, it's such a beautiful, beautiful art form. I just, Mm -hmm. I love it. But, uh, and we've kind of touched on this before. I love uh, diagrams and schematics and I love flow charts and org charts and kinship diagrams and, you know, sales figures and pie graphs and stuff. And I especially love them the more meaningless they are. I love it when they're completely missing any sort of substantial point as just so they exist purely as visual design, as a semic or a semic sort of visualizations. And I think this is a tremendous discipline. I've been practicing this. I got a cup, I've been collaging a bit of diagrams. I've made a few of my own using some of these programs, but I'm looking just at um, visual symbols without anything behind them and just, just dealing with them on that pure visual basis. And it is a beautiful, restorative, contemplative meditation practice for five to 10 minutes every day. It will quiet your mind. It will quiet the expectations of meaning coming at you. It will strengthen your, in, you know, the inducers, the projective capability of getting other people to see your meaning. It's just and it's fun. 
and <laughs> you're a good visual artist and it's worth just doodling patterns. You can see it in Gus's bottle meander, you know, that beautiful sort of thing with the yeah. waterfalls that you show. We have a natural inclination to do that. And what is the meaning? What is the sense of these things? The inner joy of doing it, the, the mm -hmm. precision of connection, the possible sharing so that other people see and, and can project some of their own meaning to it. Corporate diagrams, explicit informational diagrams try to crush that. Mm -hmm. They are exactly the kinds of things that Robert Anton Wilson warned us about. We've got to just completely rewire that. But here the lesson is to use that bad magic against itself and open up new terrain and create whole new alphabets a visual meaning that are completely abstracted and distanced from conventional meaning, so to speak. Good for the brain. Absolutely. Love that. And the dream is, is got one, well, there are other elements to it, but I want to focus on one particular image for your interpretation and I will start off by pointing out that my considerable efforts to develop a dream index, a workable dream index that I can use, allowed me to see a connection between this very recent dream and a dream from September of 2002 and a slight variation in 2006. Now, that doesn't mean anything to anyone else, but it's cool to be able to say that. It mm -hmm. solves my Presque view, you know, not deja vu, but Presque view, that idea that I'm almost about to think of something, but I can't quite, that's a terribly frustrating thing. I knew I'd had this, this image, it appeared, it was cool to be able to go back in my own personal records and, and validate that. Mm -hmm. I, in the dream, I had both my mother, Ellen, who's still very much alive, and my stepfather staying with me in in way in a way that, that that has not happened. There was something that was very strange about that. We were all in transit, so it wasn't necessarily at my home, but nonetheless, I was responsible for them. So that's the only context I have for it. But what was odd was that this place we were in was like an old uh, retail outlet from Main Street America, or it could have been from the UK or Australia, but 19th century old. And this, it had been vacant, this one room. And the window frame is extremely clear in my mind. And dirty and needing a lot of cleaning up, but original glass and, and a wood frame sort of collapsing. And yellow jackets, hornets were festering up through holes in the wood. And <laughs> it was necessary to smash the yellow jackets. I supposedly am still allergic to them. I don't, I don't, I don't pay much attention to that, but nonetheless, I don't like them, but there was something strange about all of the things that could be infesting or festering or, you know, 
insects getting your attention. There's a lot of them, you know, this is the insect planet. There's mm -hmm. a lot that could be there. And there was a distinct sense that I needed to absolutely unequivocally kill these yellow jacket hornets, European wasps, as they're often known. And that did relate to slight variations, but they figure into dreams from 2002 and 2006. But these were definitely yellow jackets that I had to kill. So that was my dream. I have been thinking about not yellow jacket, but I mentioned hornets earlier. You did. You did. It's I interesting. You mentioned wasp. Yes, you did. It's interesting that we have these on the brain and this, that this is a repeating thing. Also, interesting that your mother's there. I'll have to think about this some more, but the kind of, uh, you know, I love to think about visions and dreams as being at times manifestations of emotions bubbling up. And I wonder what the yellow jackets mean, especially considering your potential allergy. To yeah. Stings. Yeah. I mean, it means, it could mean certain death, but also you said you're not sure if you're still allergic to them or not. So is this something that could have killed you, can kill you, will kill you? I don't know. But it sounds, uh, it gave me the the willies because I just, I, I do not believe that all of God's creatures are beautiful and created equally. And hornets and wasp, yellow jackets, I don't have any time for them. I just find them to be really nasty little creatures. Bees are fine. Bees are okay, but yellow jackets not so much. I um my dream world has been uh relatively quiet once again because I, I slacked off on recording them, but I'm ready to get back into it because uh, I've been having, you know, I've been laying down with Gus when he takes his nap and getting 30, 40 minutes of shut eye with him. And those have been when the most vivid dreams have come. I think that's a great practice. And people who mm -hmm. are into dream recording long haul, and certainly anyone who is is creative in an artistic sense, that's a lot more beneficial. You, I think that the, the, the conventional sleep patterns, you know, of being in bed, you know, if you sleep nude or whatever, but it, and particularly if you have a partner, all of that gets kind of very messy and difficult. And mm -hmm. you don't actually, I, I found that, that that some of the most powerful dreams that are mo the most helpful to me, or certainly the, the give me a sense of the clarity of process, come from those kind of naps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also, I think they have, they're a great diagnostic tool because there are a lot of people who go, I can't take naps, right? You know, you'll meet people who are really anti-nap. And you know what? I, I have a secret little book and I write down the names of the people <laughs> who really plead the case that they're not into naps. And I start to, I formulated some interesting uh, connections mm -hmm. and there may be some other things that they're not so interested or not so good at. And they're, I think I'm going to, I'm not going to get involved 
you know it's like people mm-hmm. who don't like spicy food no sorry that's not you know that's not working uh, i mean you wouldn't go into business you wouldn't get into bed you know no if if people are anti-nap i can list six other things of great importance to me that they really are not with and i start to think oh okay okay probably on twitter yeah start <laughs> twitter this is not a nap person here <laughs> All right. Well, that'll wrap up for today. Great conversation as always. And uh, we'll talk to y'all next time. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thanks, Dave. That's uh, given me a lot to think about. We'll be back with our matrices. Mm -hmm. Danger. Safety.